Friends and sororities, brothers and sisters, my privilege to share with you some of the words of Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, truly one of the greatest mystical philosophers of the kind of Western tradition. Uh, he passed uh, just in the beginning of the 19th century, most of his words having been written uh, there in the late 1700s. Many of us have found his thoughts, his insights, uh, his spiritual wisdom to be inspiring and to help us <clears throat> on our own uh, road to development. So let me begin with something from one of his writings called On Divine and Spiritual Things. But there are two kinds of mysteries. One comprises the natural mysteries of the formation of physical things, their laws and modes of existence, and the object of this existence. The other comprises the mysteries of our fundamental being and its relations with this principle. The final intent of a mystery cannot be to remain altogether inaccessible, either to the understanding or to the sweet sense of admiration for which our souls are made and which we have already recognized as a first necessity for our immaterial being to feed upon. The intent of the mystery of nature is to raise us to the discovery of the laws of physical things, the knowledge of the higher laws and powers by which they are governed. The knowledge of this mystery of nature and all that constitutes it cannot then be prohibited now, even since our fall, otherwise its final intent would be missed. The final intent of the mystery of divine and spiritual things which is connected with that of our own being, is to move us and excite us, excite in us sentiments of admiration, tenderness, love, and gratitude. This mystery of divine and spiritual things ought, then, to be allowed to penetrate to the very ground of our being. Otherwise, this double mystery, which connects us with divine things and divine things with us, would fail of its effect. Brothers and sisters, just to elaborate a little bit uh, on these last two paragraphs. So Louis-Claude de Sumatan said, the intent of the mystery of nature is to raise us through the discovery of the laws of physical things to the knowledge of the higher laws and powers by which they are governed. The knowledge of this mystery of nature and all that constitutes it cannot then be prohibited now, even since our fall, Otherwise, it's in final intent we missed. And we really can see this point when he says the final, the intent of the mystery of nature is to raise us through discovery of the laws of physical things to the knowledge of the higher laws and powers by which they are governed. When we see some of the amazing discoveries of science and how they've revealed uh, the intricacy of nature, the wisdom of nature, the brilliance of nature, the beauty of nature. For many, uh, seeing some of those first images from the Hubble Space Telescope surely inspired in us uh, the awe that took and transcended our thinking, not simply from what were the physical laws responsible for, for the phenomena, but also with the higher laws and powers by which they are governed. So in that way, our study of nature can bring us to this awe and inspiration regarding the higher powers and laws by which they are governed. And then he contrasted that with the final intent, the mystery of divine and spiritual things, which is connected with that of our own being. 
So it is to move us and excite in us sentiments of admiration, tenderness, love, and gratitude. So this mystery of divine and spiritual things ought then to be allowed to penetrate to the very ground of our being. Otherwise, this double mystery, which connects us with divine things and divine things with us, would fail of its effect. So by us looking and studying our own nature, studying the mystery of our own nature, to connect us with that divine source that is within us. So both of these aspects are, are critical and valuable, the study of the outer world as well as this inner world. He went on to say, but there is a great difference between these two sorts of mysteries. The mystery of nature may be more or less known, but nature itself hardly touches our essential fundamental being at all. And if we experience pleasure in its contemplation and in penetrating its mysteries, that is nature, it is because we then rise above nature and ascend by its means to regions which are really analogous to ourselves. It is herein like a lantern showing us the way to these high regions, but unable in itself to communicate their sweetness. So the spiritual and divine things on the contrary, touch our faculties of love and admiration far more than our understanding. It seems even as though it were to prepare us for a still higher measure of admiration, that they will not so readily yield themselves to our perceptions. For if we could at will subject them to our cognizance, we should not admire them so much, and our pleasure would be less. For if it is true that our happiness is to admire, it is also true that to admire is to feel rather than to know, which is the reason why God and spirit are at once so sweet and so little known. He said, for the opposite reason, we might say that nature is so cold because it is more adapted to be known than to be felt. Thus the plans of wisdom are so arranged that things on which our true pleasure depends do not so yield to our intelligence as to quench admiration. And things which are intended less for the nourishment of our admiration, that is, our true pleasures, as having less analogy to us, afford us a sort of compensation in the pleasures of understanding. So what he's saying here is that uh, the things of nature, when we penetrate them and come to understand them, we get the compensation of the pleasure of understanding, though they cannot in themselves take us to a realization of our higher nature. And he said, so those things which are adapted to be felt, what he says describes our true pleasure, do not so yield to our intelligence as to quench admiration. And things which are intended less for the nourishment of our admiration are true pleasures, as having less analogy to us afford us a sort of compensation in the pleasure of understanding. Think about a sunset. So no matter what science article that we read right, that explains the physical phenomena of a beautiful sunset, it nonetheless cannot reach to the place where it quenches that admiration. We still recognize an aspect of it that is beyond simply uh, the facts uh, that are described for us. And those things, therefore, uh, are not 
capable of being so much resolved by our intelligence or understanding uh, because they really are things that touch our soul and touch the inner part of ourselves. So he is noting that you have these two mysteries, that of nature, where we're able to study and kind of pick apart and pull apart and become fascinated and, and admire this uh, great wisdom that lies behind the phenomena of nature, though they cannot themselves take us to the deeper realization of our own being. Uh, nevertheless, they satisfy and give us pleasure through our understanding. And those things that can touch our deeper being, uh, the things that can be felt, as he put, they are not susceptible uh, to such analysis as to quench our admiration, no more so than a scientist's description of a sunset will ever quench our admiration for experiencing it. Let's continue with his word. He said, by the way men have managed these domains, they've allowed these two sources, the study of nature as well as the study of our own being, which would have produced delicious fruit, each after its own kind, to dry up. That is, human philosophy, treating of natural sciences, keeping only on the surface, has prevented us from knowing them and has not given us even the pleasure of the understanding which they would have so readily afforded. And teachers of divine things, by darkening them and making them unapproachable, have prevented us from feeling them and so deprived us of the admiration they would not have failed to awaken us in us if they had been allowed to reach us. So when simply approached from the point of view of the natural sciences, uh, which is the same today as it was in, in his age, keeping only to the surface and not exploring the deeper intelligence that underlies the natural phenomena, give us simply a limited uh, awareness and understanding. And he said, those who are teachers of divine things, very often, what we might find uh, very often in many uh, traditional religious uh, practices, they darken them, they make them unintelligible and, and mysterious and unapproachable, and therefore prevented us from feeling them uh, and really deeply experiencing them uh, as compared to uh, awakening us, something deeper in us. So he said, he continued to say, the perfection of mystery is to unite in a true and harmonious combination. What will at once satisfy our intelligence and nourish our admiration. This we should have enjoyed forever if we had kept our first estate. For the door by which God goes out of himself is the same by which he enters the human soul. The door by which the human soul goes out of itself is the same by which it enters the understanding. The door by which the understanding goes out of itself is the same by which it enters the spirit of the universe. And you can see him pointing out this continuity, this kind of circle uh, of this connection. So again, this is the door by which God goes out of himself is the same by which he enters the human soul. And brothers and sisters, uh, there's much to reflect on there. 
and we could stay with that. Any of us and all of us could stay with that one thought and, and profit greatly undoubtedly from experiencing it, reflecting on it. He can, then he continues, the door by which the human soul goes out of itself is the same by which it enters the understanding. So when we look at our consciousness and our faculty of understanding, we can see these, these are you know, very special characteristics that transcend matter. And he said, the door by which the understanding goes out of itself is the same by which it enters the spirit of the universe. So we can see this one circle, this one loop, uh, as we uh, appreciate, uh, come to recognize the majesty, the oneness, the intelligence uh, that is throughout the creation as well, and can experience that, uh, we can sense the oneness. They're, they're inseparable, this intelligence and this universe. So that which is really an expression of our soul is also manifested in the universe. Uh, and we have that capability of experiencing that. Matan continued in one of his comments about Edelis, uh, man is the book of books. He said, but if books by stewards of divine things may render such services to the human family, what might that family not expect from man himself, reinstated in his natural rights? So again, he says, but, but if books by stewards of divine things, those who are writing about spiritual and divine things, may render such services to the human family, what might that family not expect from man himself, reinstated in his natural rights? And we know he's referring to humankind here, right? the language of the 18th century and, and so on, but uh, but is really referring to humankind. So he said, what might that family not expect from humankind self reinstated in its natural rights? Those books are but the highways between great cities. Man is himself one of the cities. Man is the primitive book, the divine book. Other books are only books of the spirit. They merely contain the waters of the river Man partakes in some sort of the very nature of the waters. So let's look at this again. So he says, if books by stewards of divine things, people, again, who write on these subjects, stewards, may render such services to the human family, right, we read and benefit from this, what might that family not expect from man himself, reinstated his natural, reinstated his natural rights? He said, those books are but the highways between great cities. So all the books on these various spiritual topics, he said, they're but the, they're the highways between great cities. He said, man is himself one of the cities. Man is the primitive book, the divine book. Other books are only books of the spirit. They merely contain the waters of the river. Man partakes in some sort of the very nature of the waters. And brothers and sisters, we, we know and have heard many times about the uh, inscription over the temple of the oracle at Delphi, know thyself. So Sermatan is pointing out to us uh, to study our own nature. He continued, 
O my brethren, read then incessantly in this man, this book of books, without leaving unread those written by stewards of divine things, which may render you such daily service. Basically, useful to read these writings by others, but study this, this book of man itself. He said, with, this, with these great means at your command, open the regions of divinity, which may be called regions of the word, and then come and relate to us all the life-giving wonders which you meet with, whose regions or all is wonder. As we study these things, we experience uh, the wonderment of uh, what would seem to be the miraculousness of the phenomena and experiences of life when we see it through this kind of inner lens, the inner truth. He said, but do not forget that in the state of aberration in which man is, you have a duty to perform for your fellow men, more urgent than writing books. That is, so to live and do, as by your efforts and desires, they may get ears to hear them. He says, this is what is most needed by mankind. If in their intelligence, they do not keep up with your writings, they don't understand your writings, you will do them no service. Your work will be like lead. And unfortunately for yourself, it won't serve them. Your egotism and self-applause will be the only fruit you derive from your undertaking. Therefore, brothers and sisters from Soros, he is pointing out to us, let us live our lives and manifest the truths of these principles that we have the good fortune to be exposed to and to use them to transform ourselves and our lives uh, so that others who may not otherwise uh, follow the arcane and esoteric uh, thoughts that might be communicated or expressed in books, but be able to see and, and with their own ears and hear uh, the value of these things. He said, because if you write great philosophical books, uh, but it's beyond people's ability to comprehend, you will do them no service. Your, your work will be led, and unfortunately, just for yourself. So he said, your egotism and self-applause will be the only fruit you derive from your undertaking. He continued, he said, I have sufficiently expressed my thought of books in saying that man was the only book written by God's own hand, that all the books which have come down to us were ordered or permitted by him, that all other books whatsoever could be but developments or commentaries of this primitive text, this original book, and that thus our primary task and one of fundamental necessity to us was that we should read in man who is the book written by God's own hand. My brothers and sisters, Francois, it is hard to overstate the significance of, of these words and their value for us. His point that man is the only book written by God's own hand. It's the direct creation, humankind, the direct creation. That's the thing. Let us study that. He said, all of the books which have come down to us were ordered or permitted by God, 
that all of the books whatsoever could be but developments or commentaries of this primitive text, this original book. So they're just writings on this, this fundamental nature of man or humankind. He says, though, thus our primary task and one of fundamental necessity to us was that we should read in man who is the book written by God's own hand. Know thyself. Know thyself. The most direct route. Unadulterated, the most direct route. Not limited by the understandings or experiences or perspective of any individual. This is the book written by God's own hand. It's there for us. He continued, he who knows himself will be able to know the universe and other beings. The knowledge of self will be found only in self. It is in man's mind that we must look for the laws that have presided at his origin. Let me repeat that. He who knows himself will be able to know the universe and other beings. But the knowledge of self will be found only in self. You can't get it by studying something else. It's pretty obvious when we think about it. If we want to know something, understand something, we must study the object itself, not something beside it or other than it. In life, we would realize that it's somewhat of a fool's errand uh, to try to penetrate, understand something by not studying the object itself and be, by studying other things instead. So again, he who knows himself will be able to know the universe and other beings. But the knowledge of self will be found only in self. It is in man's mind that we must look for the laws that have presided at his origin. So if we study humankind, our own nature, and that's not really simply referring to our physical bodies, it's really referring to this inner aspect of ourselves, which you know, has a universality to it. Uh, there we will find the laws that are presided at our origin. Let's go back to the source. He continued, at the first glance which man directs upon himself, he will perceive without difficulty that there must be a science or an evident law for his own nature, since there is one for all beings, though it is not universally in all, and since even in the midst of our weakness, our ignorance and humiliation, we are employed only in the search after truth and light. So he said that we can see, I mean, just stepping back, right? We can see that law governs everything. We send satellites and, and, and other devices to, to the outer reaches of the solar system and beyond because law governs all. Well, if we look about us, we can see it here on earth materially. It says, well, we can see that there must be a science uh, for our own nature since there's one for all beings manifest differently depending on what aspect of creation we're looking at, but there is law throughout. And since even in the midst of our weakness, our ignorance and humiliation, we employ it only in the search after truth and light. He continues to say, says, in effect, while the efforts which man makes duly, uh, daily to attain the end of his researches, 
said, although the efforts which man makes daily to attain the end of his researches are so really successful, it must not be considered on this account that the end is imaginary, but only that man is deceived as the, to the road which leads here, thereto, and is hence in the greatest of privations, since he does not even know the way in which he should walk. What he's saying here is that humankind, we are searching constantly for truth and light, and that we have not come across adequately uh, with the objective of our research right, to find these universal truths. It does not mean that they are imaginary, but only that basically we're lost in, in looking for the road which leads to them. And in that sense, he says, we're in the greatest of privations because we do not even know the way in which we should walk to find uh, these results that we seek. And he continued with uh, something that's, I think, for all of us, deeply, uh, something to deeply reflect on. He, says, he said, the overwhelming misfortune of man is not that he is ignorant of the existence of truth, but that he misconstrues his nature. Brothers and sisters, friends, Rose, that particular point, we can see this every day and every headline and everything we see about us, is that humans are looking to do the good and seek the good. It's just that very often we're confused and we misconstrue what's the nature of that good or truth. So an example which uh, in, in its extremeness perhaps illustrates the strength of this truth, that even the person who for religious reasons takes up and becomes a suicide bomber actually thinks they're doing something good. They are seeking truth, but they misconstrue the nature of it grossly and that's just true you know fortunately not many people take such extreme acts but we see in so much of human behavior where we're all going after the good but we really because we are myopic very nearsighted uh, we're not very often able to recognize these truths particularly as we look outwardly because the outward confuses the outward contrasts when we look inwardly we find the unity Samatan continued he said what errors and suffering would have been spared us if, far from seeking truth in the phenomena of material nature, we had resolved to descend into ourselves and had sought to explain material things by man and not man by material things. If fortified by courage and patience, we had preserved in the calm of our imagination the discovery of this light, which we desire all of us with so much ardor. So what has happened, uh, particularly in the Western world, is our search for truth. We have tried to explain man by examining material things, cataloging them deeply, researching further and further into them to explain man or humankind and living things. And what he's pointing out, if we had done it the other way, studied humankind, how we would have understood so much more readily and, and uh, so much uh, more greatly uh, the nature of things. 
but he said we had to descend into ourselves to do that. He said, if fortified by courage and patience, we had preserved in the calm of our imagination the discovery of this light. So knowing the direction and, and the ultimate source of truth, if we kind of hold on to that of studying self, said we would reach what we desire, all of us with so much ardor. He continued, the human understanding by applying itself so exclusively to outward things, of which it cannot even yet give a satisfactory account, knows less of the nature of man's own being, even than the visible objects around him. And we see the illustration of this. We've got enormous libraries and things that we've researched, but science is totally baffled at the nature of life and consciousness itself, without which there would be no studying or anything else. So as he says here, so the human understanding by applying itself so exclusively to outward things of which it cannot even yet give a satisfactory account, right? We're still, science is always still figuring out new things and un, coming to different understandings of prior things. He says, lo, lo, knows less of the nature of man's own being even than of the visible objects around him. He said, yet the moment man ceases to look at the true character of his intimate essence, he becomes quite blind to the eternal divine source from which he descends. For if man brought back to his primitive elements is the only true witness and positive sign by which this supreme universal source may be known, that source must necessarily be effaced when the only mirror that can represent it to our minds disappears. So let me just repeat that. So he said, yet the moment man ceases to look at the true character of his intimate essence, right? When we cease to look at this essence within us, or the source of our being, he says it becomes quite blind to the eternal div divine source from which he descends. So we'll never figure out the divine source, which we, we, we are based on and expressions of by simply looking at the outer world. So he said then, for if man brought back to his primitive elements is the only true witness and positive sign by which this supreme universal source may be known, that source must necessarily be effaced, kind of uh, blocked, occluded, when the only mirror that can represent it to our minds disappears. So we stop looking at our own nature because man, humankind, is this expression of this universal source. When we stop doing that, the only mirror that can represent it to our minds, therefore, disappears. So we cannot be found outside. He continues, then, when praiseworthy writers and well-meaning defenders of truth try to prove that there is a God and deduce from his existence all its necessary consequences, as they no longer find this human soul sufficiently in harmony to serve as a witness, then go back to nature and to speculation taken from the eternal order. Hence, many excellent spirits in modern times have made use of all the resources of logic and put every external science under contribution in their endeavors firmly to establish the existence of divinity. And yet, notwithstanding these numerous testimonies, never was atheism more in fashion. We said again, 
when praiseworthy writers and well-meaning defenders of truth try to prove that there is a God and deduce from his existence all its necessary consequences, and they no longer find this human soul sufficiently in harmony to serve as a witness, then they go back to nature and to speculation taken from the external order. It said, hence many excellent spirits in modern times have made use of all the resources of logic and put every external science under contribution in these endeavors, firmly to establish the existence of divinity. And yet, notwithstanding these numerous testimonies, never was atheism more in fashion. So no matter all the efforts to try to do this through external things, right, using all the tools of science and other things and philosophy and logic, uh, nevertheless, uh, it has not been successful. And as he put, never was atheism more in fashion. And we surely can say that today, uh, 200 plus years later. He said, it must be the glory of our species and show the great wisdom of providence that all the proofs taken in the order of this world are so defective. For if this world could have truly shown the divinity, God would have been satisfied with that witness and have had no need to create man. In fact, man was created merely because the whole universe, notwithstanding all the grandeurs it displays to our eyes, never could manifest the riches of divinity. Says, I want to read, read this paragraph for you. It must surely be to the glory of our species and show the great wisdom of providence that all the proofs taken in the order of this world, this material world, are so defective. But if this world could truly have shown the divinity, God would have been satisfied with that witness and had no need to create man. In fact, man was created merely because the whole universe, notwithstanding all the grandeurs it displays to our eyes, never could manifest the riches of divinity. Professor, as I think about it at times, and you think of the sun or a star, enormously powerful, incredibly powerful beyond our, really truly our ability to comprehend. But yet without awareness, without self-awareness, the nature of our self-awareness is greater than all of the hydrogen fusion going on on our sun or any star no matter how large and magnificent it might be in magnitude. So Matana continued, he said, a far different effect is produced by those great writers who, in maintaining the existence of God, take man himself for their proof and the basis of their demonstrations. Man as he should be, at least, if not as he is. For evidences acquire force and fullness and satisfy all our faculties at once. The evidence drawn from man is gentle in its effect and seems to speak the language of our own nature. That which is drawn from the outside world is cold and arid and like a language apart, which requires a laborious study. Besides, the more peremptory and decisive this kind of evidence is, the more it humbles our antagonist and disposes them to hate us. But that which is taken from the nature of man, on the contrary, even when it obtains a complete victory over the unbeliever, causes him no humiliation. 
because it places him in a position to feel and partake of all the dignity which belongs to his quality as man. And who is not vanquished by this sublime evidence might at most deride it sometimes, but other times he would very likely be sorry not to be able to reach so high a ground and would certainly never take offense at it being offered to him. And this is enough to show how carefully we ought to sound the depths of man's being and affirm the sublimity of his essence, that we nay thereby demonstrate the divine essence. There is nothing else in the world that can do it directly. And so what he's pointed out is when we, people try to use the material world to use, to give proof of the existence of God or the divine, said it arouses indignation and resistance uh, very often and, and disposes our antagonists uh, even more to hate uh, those who are presenting it. But he said, when the evidence is taken from the nature of, of mankind or humankind itself, he said, even when it obtains a complete victory over the unbeliever, causes him no humiliation because it places him in a position to feel and partake of all the dignity which belongs to his quality as man. So even his ideas may be contradicted, perhaps, but he's he's given an exalted status, right, through this, all the dignity which belongs to his quality as man, when when the evidence is taken directly from from man. He says, one who is not vanquished by this sublime evidence might at most deride it sometimes, but other times would likely be sorry not to be able to reach to so high a ground and would certainly never take offense at it being offered to him. And that is enough to show carefully we ought to sound the depths of man's being and affirm the sublimity of his essence, that we may thereby demonstrate the divine essence, for there is nothing else in the world that can do it directly. He complete, he said in closing, I repeat, to attain this end, every argument taken from this world and nature is unsatisfactory, unstable. We suppose things for the world to arrive at a fixed being in whom everything is true. We lend to the world abstract and figurative verities to prove a being who is altogether real and positive. We take things without intelligence to prove a being who is intelligence itself. Things without love to demonstrate him who is only love things circumscribed within limits to make known him who is free and things that die to explain him who is life. My brothers and sisters, friends and sisters, may you ever dwell in the eternal light of divine wisdom.